Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, please like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero's story. What I really love about this conversation with Dean Lloyd is his bravery, really, for showing up, coming forward, sharing his story. And it's a story that it's really the road less traveled and it's a story of his life journey of addiction but also ending up in the prison system which most of us we have no insight about and love how Dean has been able to own his own struggles he's been able to own everything he went through and what a story like the, the detail he gave and the honesty and the brutality of the moments in his journey that just broke him and it was a tough one to hear, yet I so enjoyed it. I was inspired by who he's become and who he's becoming. And I think that's the most important thing when we hear these journeys and we go through our own journeys. It's about the journey itself. It's who we become on the way. He's all about change in our prison system now and hearing him talk about this bigger purpose that he has is just so inspiring. Anyway, I'll leave that to you. Listen to this wonderful conversation, this story with Dean Lloyd. Enjoy. Well, here we are. Um, but I'm Aveline Clark. This is another episode of the Kintsugi Heroes podcast. And I've got Dean Lloyd with me today. Dean, how are you doing? Um, yeah, pretty good. It's been a busy day, but um, yeah, it's good, good to just be at home and, and feel a bit settled. Mm. I know that feeling. I really do. So uh, I appreciate you coming along, joining me here to share your story. I know that, um, you know, sometimes these things, it, it's not an easy thing to, to talk about our past or aspects of our lives and um you know it's a, it's something that i really appreciate no thank you i really respect um and value the, the invitation to have um being allowed to come and tell tell my story so thank you. so let's get started then could you take me back to i guess at the start like let's go back to the beginning uh as in what what was going on for you in life at the time or just before um, I guess the challenge or adversity hit you, whatever it is that you went through. Yeah. Um, so I had a, what I would consider a relatively um, good childhood. Um, didn't really want for anything. My parents, um, you know, my dad was a real estate agent in the eighties. So, uh, and he was a self-made man. So he knew what it was like to have nothing and come up. And, and was able to provide everything that he never got and um, was really not that interested at school um, at all. Um, and I think that was just maturity and, and there was stuff like hindsight's a wonderful thing, but just didn't have any interest. How I was very good at sport, 
So that was the reason why I was allowed to stay at school, essentially. Captain of the football team, stuff like that. I was a prefect as well. Um, and it was around um, about 17 or 18, and I was playing um, rugby league, and I injured my knee. I snapped my cruciate ligament. And as part of that process, I was dabbling here and there and, you know, smoking a bit of weed and what some might refer to as recreational drugs now. But at that recovery process, prior to that, I was like heavily into sport. It was something that I don't think needed to keep me focused, but it just did because I enjoyed it. It was something I was passionate about and something that I did um, and loved doing, team environment, all of that sort of stuff. And then um, when that was taken away and it was a um, – I had to get my knee, recon- knee reconstructed, uh, and that was a 12-month prospect at that stage. And during that time, I, um, I started to take more drugs um, and experiment and, and was very curious. I was a curious kid. I still am very curious, I would say, um, and finally fell into heroin and, and really sought it um, essentially at the start. Uh, unknowing, like, you know, this, uh, this white kid from the suburbs, um, you know, uh, heading into the city trying to, um, trying to score heroin. And in, in the beginning, it took me like three weeks of concerted effort to actually get it. So I was persistent and consistent, um, which, you know, later down the track, you'll learn about the value of that as well. Uh, or, you know, we'll talk about that. So. Why did you want it so much? Why were you persistently trying to find it? It's it's not a – I haven't really come to – I think it was just curiosity, as mm. in it was somewhat romanticised at the time. Um, you know, and I don't really want to blame anyone else for that, like for that sort of, uh, you know – because I could say, oh, I was listening to music and it was that and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, I was hanging around with the crew and it was that. So I, I really uh, have understood the, the value of personal responsibility. So, um, yeah, and I won't go into the details, but it was just a random Monday night in a new town when I first got a hold of it. And um, it was at Sydney Punk's headquarters. And, like, I'm not a – like, I don't know how I – it's just that was fate that delivered me that hand and um, it was a room full of people, like 50 people. And um, mm. that was my first experience with heroin, like injecting it, straight to injecting and not smoking it. Um, and I remember um, I remember a voice in the background and it just rings in my ears still. And, and so my mate was there and he said, what was it like? And I said, oh, it's the best thing in the world. And there was a voice in the background that said, it's all over now. And I was just like, at the time, no, like just whatever. And that was when I was about 18 and, you know, had the opportunity to go back and play league at a high level um, and just never went back to training, never went back and went on a trajectory of um, heroin addiction for Quite a few years, probably in total, probably about 12 years. Were you working? At the start, was working. Mm-hmm. I had a girl. Mm-hmm. So I was living with a girlfriend. It was Monday night. We come home from Newtown. She's like, where have you been? 
And I said, oh, we've been out doing this. And she said, well, where's mine? And it was on. I just went <laughs> from there. Um, and we were able to sustain a supporter habit sort of for uh, probably about 12 months. And then we had the grand idea to of working um, and, you know, supporting it through the sale of other illicit substances as well. So sort of borderline criminal behaviour, but not sort of criminal masterminds, if you know what I mean. Just, um, yeah, so then we decided that if we went to the Oktoberfest in Munich, um, that would cure our heroin addiction. And this is in the middle of Cabramatta heyday too. So this is like when it was like an epidemic, and I don't know if you know about that, but, um, yeah, you, like, People, dealers would fight over you in the street to try and sell you drugs. It was, I've never, well, yeah, I don't think I'll ever experience it. I wouldn't want to experience anything like that again because it was, it was a terrible scene. People were dying left, right and center. Um, yeah, it's really sad to look back upon it. But, um, so yeah, made this decision to go to the Oktoberfest in Munich. And, um, I remember landing in Frankfurt and, <laughs> I think within we landed at about seven o'clock, and within by eight thirty, we're smoking crack in a phone box with some random dude we didn't even know. Um, and uh, travelled around for a bit, sort of you know uh, wobbled here, there, and everywhere. And this is sort of my childhood sweetheart from school. We're going to get do the Europe thing and, and come back and get married, living you know in the suburbs, somewhat of a charmed life, um, and. Yeah, travelled around, stopped in Amsterdam, lived there for a bit, um, and then went on to London. And she decided to pull up stumps and stopped, and I couldn't quite get to it. And I travel, I caught a plane to the furthest I've ever travelled in my life to school heroin from Heathrow to Cabramatta. Because the, the heroin was different over there. It was a different process of using it and blah, blah, blah. But, um, so yeah, I left my childhood sweetheart, um, for what I would consider and would have said at that stage and still, um, still is a contentious issue. Uh, my one true love. One thing that I would just ultimately bend over backwards for and, um, and have done continually and put my, put that ahead of a lot of other things. Um, so yeah, then come back and just fell straight back into it. It wasn't really pretty. And it was my, so I landed just before my 23rd birthday. I think it was a week before my 23rd birthday and had my 23rd birthday. It was debaucherous and out of control. Um, and within a week, I was in my first rehab. So went to rehab, and I think in the subsequent 18 months, had about 25 admissions in and out of rehab, um, and just couldn't, wouldn't submit, commit, do anything. Uh, you know, I'd get a certain period of time and then sort of slip back and um, ended up, in a program in Roselle, I was doing okay there and got sort of like very close. I think it was like a week or so off completion, a six month program and slipped up again. 
and ended up in Wollongong in rehab and met my first wife in rehab. So, yeah, if you want to know why people say don't get into a relationship with people in rehab, here goes. Um, so I met this woman. She was about six or seven years older than me. She come in and I was just like, so the way I describe it is, you know, the Tasmanian devil or the tiger on the cartoons that just spins around like that. That's, that was sort of what I seen as I picture in my mind's eye at that time. I was like, sign me up. But I'm yeah, like, whatever's happening here, I want a bit of it. And this girl had come from a totally different lifestyle to me. Like, totally, you know, she's a ward of the state, you know, all of that sort of stuff. She had a kid. Um, so anyway, we got together, broke every rule in the rehab, but remains there. Um, and then I think we were close to completion. And then one night, and I, like, yeah, co-ed rehabs, so I don't know about that, but we we're in this halfway house where there was no staff. And there was like four girls and six guys who we were sleeping, like in bed together the whole night, all the time. And she's like, oh, I've got a house. We should just go back to my house. Like, it's the same. And then we're not breaking the rules. It's like, yeah, that's a good point. We're not breaking the rules if we're living together at your place. Anyway, I think, you know, we made the decision to come clean to, the group that we were living with, because no one knew it was a secret and it was, that was addictive as well. That, that whole secrecy and, you know, getting clean and all of the senses coming back, um, is quite an intense process, um, and lustful. So yeah, that's, that was, it was just wild. Um, and I think it was within five minutes of being out of that house. We had scored and shot. We're shooting heroin. Yeah. And this is when the journey begins. So just opened my world up to a whole other level of crime and criminal activity. You know, before that, people had referred to me as a toaster hocker, which is someone you're like, you go to cash converters, you hock your goods, and then you go and get on. And that's sort of the extent of, or you might steal someone else's stuff and go and hock at it. Uh, cash inverters, and that was the extent of the crime. You know, I, I ultimately I got uh, arrested for armed robbery because so we had done a job where we made a lot of money twenty odd years ago, about you know significant amount of money. And when you live that lifestyle, there is no tomorrow. So mm-hmm. it was gone in six months. And what mm-hmm. happened was, when that money goes so does the drugs and when you're using a copious amounts of drugs and have access to that continually for six months um yeah it doesn't end pretty and so yeah it was it was boxing day being boxing day 1999 nothing was open you know back in those days there was no like there was nothing open yeah so being to visit my parents trying to get money off them couldn't get any money blah blah pulled up at this corner store and that was like a hundred meters from the house in a car that was registered in my name. This is the desperation. So I just got to that point. So it wasn't like, I'm not trying to, you know, um, it was the only shop that was open in the world as far as I was concerned. 
ran in there, got the money, done the job, didn't even get enough money to buy enough drugs to not be sick. So then was subsequently, so that was Boxing Day, then the police turned up on the 28th of December and arrested me, and I went to prison. Ultimately, I was sentenced to four years of prison uh, with a non-parole period of two years. So I served two years. Mm-hmm. And after we got sentenced, um, on the way back to the jail, I proposed to her on the back of the escort there. So she's with you the whole time? Yeah, she was um, a co-offender. She, she was my co Yeah, yes, she, okay. yeah, yeah. She's okay. away from the car to drive it away, yeah? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, the, and again, I don't want to, you know, we've both been charged for it, so it's not as if I'm telling mm. out of school. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, just the stupidity. I'm just like, like, yeah, it's desperation. Um, mm. so we ended up in prison and we're sentenced to four years. Um, yeah, proposed her on the back of the escort truck. She got two years. I got four years. She said, yes. Yay. <laughs> we're going to have a prison wedding and everything. Uh, did that didn't quite eventuate. Thank God. Um, however, the prison experience for me, was very so that's the thing that traumatized me i was i think it was my second or third day there and i watched a guy that i was in a cell with um bash a guy with 15 other guys with a cricket stump that was like within a meter of me that was like the and then i had to go into the cell with this guy it's like what the fuck is hell um, yeah, it was, it was a surreal and eye-opening experience. Um, mm. however, one thing that I have, like prison is an economy of scale. Essentially, you know, there's a hierarchy. If you stick mm. to the rules and you do the right, like, you, you know, there, there are no dramas. It's once you start to sway outside of that, that justice mm. is swift and violent. Like, mm. This guy got kicked around the yard for 15 minutes by 15 large men. Mind you, he had allegedly um, raped somebody. So that's this, that's how things transpire in that mm. world. Mm. And it was a world so foreign to me, mm. so, so foreign, because I was just this white kid from the suburbs that was just like, wait a minute, I just like, I, I was just over there with them and now I'm here. Like, how did that happen? And mm. oh, so I started doing some work as a sweeper in um, pod 13 at MRRC and um, the sergeant of arms of the Comancheros came in. And I don't know if you know what the sergeant of arms means. So the sergeant of arms yeah. in a bikey gang is the most, he's the best fighter. Mm-hmm. So he can beat anybody. Mm. That's his job. So if there's any mess or any dramas, he cleans it up physically mm-hmm. and violently. Anyway, he comes in, he goes, I'm the sweeper now, mate, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sweep, no worries, no no arguments here. And he, However, he was, he used to say to me, he said, mate, I don't know what you are doing in jail, but you don't belong here. And he said, you need to walk with me every day and, um, and people will see you with me and you'll be right, they won't touch you. Okay, whatever. Sweet, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, 
And then he would regale all of these stories to me around uh, acts of physical violence <laughs> that I won't go into because that's not my stories to tell. However, I'd just be like, you know, wow, okay, this is... And um, he used to make me read his love letters because he was illiterate and he'd cry and he goes, if you tell anyone, I'm passionate. <laughs> so it's just that hot. It's like, wow. how does this, like, you, people wouldn't even believe this, if you know. Mm. But, mm. um, mm. and, you know, and this, this guy was extremely violent and someone that no one would want to mess with. And he was really nice to me, like really nice to me, would give me food, would give me smokes, would give me stuff. Mm. Um, so it's just that whole weird experience of, um, as well as the punishment on top of that. So, you know, it's green and blue. So, you know, there's the officers and the, the inmates and, um, and they're quite violent. They're beh- like not physical. It's more that mental or it was for me anyway. Um, you know, there used to be these forms. They call them blueies. You'd go and you'd, so if you wanted anything, you had to fill out a bluey. You know, can I have a phone call to such and such? So I need to speak. Whatever you wanted, you had to fill one out. And like you'd fill it out and then you'd hand it to them. And sometimes they'd just put them into the shredder as like, mm. and it's just like, yeah. So prison for me was the most dehumanising process ever. Can I ask, were you still using drugs during prison? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Easy access. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I smoked uh, yeah. dope every day. I wasn't using heroin because a lot of people wouldn't use, let me use it in there. I did use heroin in prison shared needles however that's when people get into trouble sorry for the interruption this is ian westmoreland the founder of kintsugi heroes and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support if you would like to help us continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kitsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kitsukiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. So yeah, I I didn't I did use heroin, however not um, excessively. That's essentially where people got get into trouble was they rack up big debts, they make promises around bringing in and access and all that. So just shared needles a couple of times in prison, um, got hepatitis C as a result. Um, but yeah, most of the people that I was connected with, so even like the bikey guy, he just was like. You can't, you're not, you, like you said, if I find out you're using heroin, I'll bash you. It's like, okay. <laughs> uh, and I didn't do all of my time with him, but, you know, um, yeah, it was, so prison, I've done most of my time relatively easy. In pr- like the longer I was there, the easier it got. So mm. it's, it's not essentially a deterrent as such. Um, you know, done, done my time. 
done it in and out of a couple of like different jails, lots of bizarre and violent behavior. Um, and essentially I came out and I was a violent man, which mm. I wasn't before that. Mm. So, um, was that from anger? Yeah. So, well, so what happens is in, in prison, it's survival of the fittest. So yeah. when the door opens in the morning, if you don't, um, have your suit of armor on, then someone's going to come and take what you got. Right. So you have to, you have to at all. Even if, even if you're going to get bashed, you have to. And the thing is about that is there's violence, but once that's done and people generally, you know, if you haven't done anything too bad, won't let it, like, let you just get flogged um, forever and ever and ever and, and wait for the guards to come. They'll usually say, he's had it up, let him up. Um, but then you get up, you shake hands, and it's done. It's like, that's it. It's over. And you can be friends, like, five minutes later if you really wanted to. Like, it's, it, yeah, it's a surreal sort of, like, oh, I feel upset about that. And it's like, yeah, well, I feel upset. Okay, then let's shake hands. It's like, no, bang, 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 let's. And then it's done. Yeah. So it's just a real barbaric and archaic sort of practice and process, like almost Cro-Magnon, essentially. Mm. And prison is, I would suggest and believe, full of scared little boys around who can sort of, who has the biggest, mm. ah, you know, and how can I, ah, because that's just what it is, you know. Mm. It's full of desperate, scared boys. Mm. And, um yeah, and it's survival of the fittest. So whoever can bash the other guy doesn't mean that they're wiser, smarter, better, or anything. It's just they're physically violent and willing to do that, sustain. Um, so yeah, that's um, that was my experience of prison, and I really, I think I only ever had one fight ultimately, which was okay, um, but didn't didn't have to mainly because of the people that I was associated with, which was fine, and and, and I didn't do anything stupid either. Mm. So, got out very angry, and I remember when I realised, look, I had that sort of moment of clarity, mm. and I'd some someone had cut me off in the in the traffic, and I hopped out of my car and started kicking his door in and spitting through the window just in his ray. Like I was, I couldn't. Like my eyes had sort of rolled in the back of my head. So that's the thing about prison. If you get, are disrespected, you have to save face. Otherwise, mm. so, someone else will come and disrespect you straight away. Cause they're like, mm. there's the weak guy and you can always smell it and see it. It's like so primal. It's like, okay, there's the weakness. Let's, um, and they will, they'll come in a pack and they'll just, yeah, whatever. Take your smokes, take your dinner, take whatever. Um, so yeah, I've, and I looked. And it was like an 85 year old man that probably didn't oh. even realize that he cut me off. Oh, it was, the, oh, just the, the shame of like you, like to myself, you weak piece of shit. Mm. <laughs> like I was yeah. threatening to stab it as like, but I, so I was just in that rage that I couldn't mm. even see what, and, mm. and this is a set of traffic lights in like peak hour traffic. <laughs> and I just went, what wow. the fuck am I doing? And yeah. that was the furthest thing from me ever. Like I was a, I've always been, I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter. Um, and all, you know, 
Um, so yeah, it was just like, fuck, and I still have that in me. Like it can flare up when I feel disrespected, it'll flare up. And it's, mm. you know, something that I'd need to be, you know, consistently aware of if I get caught out. Um, my anger and rage can just peak. And mm. that's, that's, I think one of the things that's been the byproduct of, of incarceration. Um, so yeah, then got married. Had a kid, um, had a, a child that was a, born addicted to methadone, so it didn't stop you, like, you know, didn't, prison didn't, was in no way, shape or form a deterrent in any way, shape or form. So yeah, just got out, got married, had the child. So the reason why we had the child, like, well, you're still using drugs early, early. The partner had had two atopic pregnancies and an ovary move. It's like you're never going to get pregnant, so we're just like on our way, yeah. Using copious amounts of um, drugs still, and um, all of a sudden she's pregnant. It's like okay, yeah, this is going to be the thing that's going to make me stop. So yeah, child born addicted to methadone didn't make us stop, um, and that's one thing I remember. One thing someone said is like, there's nothing, you know, the only thing more powerful for the love of a parent and a child, heroin. You know, it's, that's where I sort of, you know, let it go um, and, and own up to that yeah. uh, and still are paying the consequences that today as a result of, you yeah. know, that, that child still struggles in certain ways, shapes and forms, um, mm. which is half of my responsibility, I believe. Um, yeah. So at about 18 months, I had that moment of clarity and went, okay, this kid didn't ask to be born. I made that choice. If in like a week's time, 10 weeks, no, if I, it was, if in six months time, if I'm still doing this thing, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill the kid. Like I'm going to, it's going to be over. Anyway, so I, I called my parents, said I want to come home. They were like, yeah, if you want to come home, this is what you have to do, which I knew like substance free. Uh, got a methadone, detoxed off methadone in their basement as a single dad. So I took the kid with me, didn't leave a, the mother kept going and doing whatever she needed to do. Um, so, yeah, took my daughter with me. Uh, and I think by the time she was about three, um, I'd gotten clean, completely drug-free. And um, and you did that on your own? Uh, no, so I had to fly to Western Australia and get a Naltrexonia plan. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, had to. So, I was that desperate that I had to get mm. naltrexone inserted inside of me and stitched in. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it worked. It worked, though, because there was nothing else that I could have. So at that stage and still to this day, I don't know of any rehabs that pay a father and a child. Mm. I, I don't know. So there was nowhere for mm. me to go. Mm. And and I kept slipping back at mum and dad's, and they're like, well, like you got to go, mate. You know the deal. Mm. you got to go. Mm. And, and I really didn't want to. Like, I wanted to get clean. I just really couldn't and um, sort of just fell into a real estate career in the family. Like, my dad was a real estate agent, as I said before. Fell into that. Um, had quite a good run, um, you know, properties, share portfolio, cut the whole bit. Um, and then I think when my daughter's about five-ish, met lovely young lady. And we got married, 
we had two, we have two amazing children. Um, and just after our third one was born, or the third one was born, my third child was born, I slipped back into addiction. Started using heroin again. Um, and, you know, because of the success in the real estate, I, I didn't have to, like, I wasn't jumping through, through people's windows. I was quite, um, and the woman that I was married to had never seen me use drugs, never. And just the person that she met, she didn't actually believe the story that I would tell her. She's like, oh, yeah. like I don't even see that person. Anyway, yeah. she come home one day and I was on the lounge, passed out, had a needle still hanging out of my arms. She said, have you been using drugs? I said, no. She said, have you been using drugs? I said, no, 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 I'm just really tired. It's been a big day. Anyway. She's like, what's, what's that in your arm? Like the denial and the lies is so strong with, with addiction. Like mm. you have to catch me. You have to catch me like that mm. for me to admit it. And I still wasn't admitting it. Um, this poor woman has, has just gone, what the fuck is going on here? Um, and then I went to rehab, got my shit together again. Got back to like you know went back into that relationship, um, yep. and and had a midlife crisis, mm. <laughs> and yeah, um, I just really had disdain for money at that stage. Mm. Like I just felt like I was in this pissing competition. It's like if I get that, then I'll be happy. If I get that, and then I'll be happy, and then I'll get that, and then I'll be happy, and then I was never happy. Because it was just like, you know, my mate would get the next best car. And I'd get it. It's just like, and then it was like, and I just went, I just don't want to do this anymore. I really don't want to do this anymore. I fell out with my dad around. So, yeah, I could have just inherited that business if I really wanted to. Um, fell out with him, the family to Bali for three months to sort of go, what do I want to do? And um, went, okay, when I go back, I want to do work that's more giving than taking. So I decided to get into the community sector, community services, and um, come back and really struggle. Like I was 13 years out of jail at that stage. Hmm. Hadn't had any further police incidences and um, couldn't get a job because of my criminal record. Oh. In, in the community services sector. Wow. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was really frustrating. Um, so yeah, just sort of went, oh, there's this, that and the other. And then finally, um, a community housing organization gave me an opportunity. They went, we need someone to start tomorrow. We think you're going to be capable. Can you do this? Um, I was like, yeah, I started there and that started my journey. And then I realized, um, I needed to, uh, do some more education and training when I'm done a diploma in community services. Uh, went on to do a graduate certificate in gestalt therapy. So like I'm a counselor, um, still a licensed real estate agent. Not that I like to declare that too often. <laughs> um, and, um, started to work in space and then like realized I just, you know, I wanted to do other work, started working, supporting men exiting prison in like rehabs and drug treatment centers. Um, 
and um, then had a bit of a slip again. Job required me to be abstinence, and then I fell into another organisation that really valued lived experience. So I was able to be employed in a job that mm. required me to be in prison first. So right. that was a prerequisite, yeah, which was wow. a novelty at the time. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah. I can be me. I can be, and mm. that was that was a really powerful, somewhat intoxicating sort of. You know, oh, mm. shit, I'm a, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> These people don't, you know, maybe have done it here as well because uh, I'm quite comfortable around my story um, and around disclosing, but I know it can be confronting and off-putting for other people. So um started working in this lived experience thing. Applied for, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to change the system. Applied for a job with Creek Services. Um, got the job thinking I was going to change it from the inside. <laughs> so deluded um, and didn't. So I got an email, congratulations, you got the job. 15 minutes later, a phone call, uh, sorry, you're an unsatisfactory person. When, when I put your name into the system, you come up as an unsatisfactory person. I was like, I don't, what does that even mean? He said, that's beyond my pay grade. Took him to the Human Rights Commission. Three years I fought them at the Human Rights Commission and had a decision made in my favour. Um, and then ultimately they said, oh, what job do you want? And I said, look, I really feel like I've dodged a bullet. I don't want to work for you. Thank you very much. Um, and was right. So I'd written an employment program and I was delivered as a sort of external contractor in correction centers, which was, that was a weird sort of thing. Because the people in the email chain for the human rights and for the job at corrections, they were the same people. Right. So, uh, yeah. This is like, yeah. And then started to get into, or started to get a bit of an advocate voice around learning more about the, the you know, all the, a lot of the people. So I sit in really rare air. I've only been to prison once. That's sort of very uncommon. Um, so, and I put that down to my privilege essentially, but what I discovered was a lot of the people that I'd known just in and out in there. Like, it's not that yeah. fucking good. What do you keep going yeah. back? But just yeah. started to understand the barriers that they faced and the discrimination that they were facing that I was facing because I hadn't faced that for the first 12 years because I just got a family job. Whereas now I was facing the discrimination of the employment and all, and all of those sorts of things. And I was skilled and capable of negotiating. They like mm. a lot of these people hadn't completed year 10. Can I ask Dean? At this point, so you're talking now. At this point, you've, you've got this solid employment. You, you've you've fought the HR, the Human Rights Commission. You know, you're doing some amazing programs in corrective services. Did you consider yourself clean at that point? Did you feel clean? As in, what do you mean by from the clean? Dr- from the addiction, from the drug addiction? Um. Oh uh, no. No. It's always there. Yeah. Uh, like if you okay. put heroin in me, like I don't know, I couldn't guarantee what would happen. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I still okay. occasionally have a drink, like I drink alcohol, which I never could before. Um, mm-hmm. However, I don't, and it's not so much. It's more around the damage that's happened as a result of the incarceration, more than anything. If you know what I mean, that's what brings me the shame, because I've yeah. done a shit thing to somebody. I've done a few terrible things, 
So they're not my proudest moments. But, yeah, it's so, you know, what the, the, the most powerful thing that one guy said to me that was really a catalyst was, and this guy was like an old school bank robber that I respected that had got his shit together. He said, mate, if you want to know about courage, he said, the most courageous thing I could ever do is face my greatest fear. And he said, you know what my greatest fear is? And I said, what? And he goes, telling another man how I feel. Yeah. I was just like, whoa, fuck, don't ask me to do that. He said, I could punch on with anybody in the middle of the yard. You could bash me, beat me, stab me, rob me, whatever, not even a blinking eyelid. He said, mate, to tell you how I feel and what's going on for me, mm. I don't know why, but he said it makes – he said, I'm, I can feel it now. I feel like I'm sweating as well. Like I can feel that it just gets stuck in here. Mm. Because boys don't cry, all that sort of bullshit that you, you know, well, I heard when I was growing up, which is terrible, terrible language. Mm. Mm. Do you feel like the journey has been, like you said, there's the incarceration, but there's also the imprint, the societal imprint on you as a young boy. Do you feel like the journey post like getting out of jail has all been kind of healing and pulling back layers and trying to come back to who you are? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I think I often think like I used to say I wouldn't change anything, as in over my life. And now I reflect on like I really the things that I would change. There's a few things that I with I really wouldn't want the traumatic experience to happen to my to the people that I was robbing. So there was other things that I got away with that I'm not going to talk about because I'm not going to incriminate myself. <laughs> no, stupid. Um, sure. But, but I got away with things, you know what I mean? That people were harmed in. Um, so that's, that's something that I would, I wouldn't want to happen again. However, then I probably wouldn't go to jail. And then, you know, what that looks like, who knows? Um, there's a few things that I'd do differently around. So I'm now divorced again for a second time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and was single through COVID. It was just so excruciatingly painful. Emotionally, for mm. me. that was like yep. the emotions, and so yeah. Once when you stop taking drugs and you, you feel everything, um, understanding how not to do that, um, yeah, that was that's been a real process for me to get out of, and I feel like I'm still coming out of it and coming to terms. But oh, I feel like I just woke up one day and my my family just wasn't there, mm. so that's yeah. quite. Still gets me. Miss my kids terribly. Miss my ex-wife terribly as well. Um, yeah, but that's you know she she was so she was the one person that believed in me. Mm. When a, a lot of others have given up, and that's a powerful thing. It saved my life. It really did. So now you're living a life to serve others, to help others navigate through some of those sandstorms that you went through and do things better and differently. You're giving back. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. For me, what it's about now is modelling the behaviour that is achievable and having appropriate reactions to life as it happens, not getting sort of, like, oh, yeah, I feel sad. Like, I just connected with sadness. And, like, 
because I, I should feel sad. That's it's a valid emotion. You know, shame's a valid emotion. Anger's a valid emotion. It's those toxic ends that that are damaging and 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 cause harm to others as well as myself. So that's yep. where I try to sit now. And, you know, I've just, just been awarded a fellowship to go and study abroad, uh, posing the question, can we build safer communities by closing a prison? Wow. And there's evidence to suggest so. So I'm going to Rikers prison. So the most incarcerated nation, America and the mm -hmm. Netherlands, the least incarcerated nation. So I want to create a spectrum and then pull the things out that we can and ultimately my goal is to close Long Bay Prison. Wow. Yeah. That's And know. I have no doubt that you're gonna do that too. Thank you. Right? Yeah. You've got a lot of drive and a lot of toughness in you. Like <laughs> Thank you. It's interesting. Some people when you step out or when I step outside of the echo chamber, um hmm. I've said it to someone like at a I don't know where I was, but it wasn't somewhere I'd usually go. I was at a mm. dinner party or something on a like a date with somebody, and it was just like someone's like, "Why the fuck would you want to do that? That's the stupidest idea I've heard." It's just like, "Wow, okay, yeah, let's talk about that." But you know what I mean? Just those. It's really for me that was a real moment of like echo. Like a, I don't need to convince you. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. And that's the person that I need to convince. Like that's yeah. the work, not the like. Yeah. Preach to the choir. No, you don't need to preach to the choir. The hard sell is the guy that's like, that's the stupidest idea in the world, mate. Which, <laughs> hey, yeah, if that's what you believe, it is then. So it's just around, and that I think for me, that's been the most valuable experience of all of the stuff. Yeah. Is that yeah. I'm not always right. You're not always right, but I'm willing to sit down and communicate about it. I have, I have the ability to have a normal and appropriate conversation without escalating mm. my I'm fucking right and you need to do it my way. Mm. Because essentially that's the that's the solution as I see it. So mm. one at the moment is we just have this one size fails all approach, which is prison. Mm. Mm. Yep. And for some people it works. Some people we mm. need a catalyst for change. It's about finding those appropriate catalysts for change for everybody. Yeah. And yeah, what would be the trigger for yeah, and what works for some, what doesn't work for others, but we don't have access to that at the moment. Last question: I know that the the clock is ticking. If, if there's someone listening to this, um, Dean, who's been through any any of the, the you know, experiences that you've shared with us, what piece of advice would you give them? So the, the the great if it's a man, that story about telling another man how you feel, face those fears, be courageous. Be courageous about who you are. Tell another man how you feel. Look to other men that can do that and watch and learn from them because we haven't got – I don't feel like men have that ability and capability and I don't feel like it's been modelled to us as of yet. We need that to be – it's probably a five, ten-year prospect of having that modelled and implemented. The other thing is, the you know, there's very rare um, – few guarantees in life but one thing i will guarantee is it'll be different how you are feeling right now will not be how you feel in a week yeah it'll be different and if you're on top of the world now you'll be shit next week no you won't but 
you know what I mean? And if you ship now, you'll be on top of the world next week. I ga- that's mm. the guarantee that I'll give you because that's how it's been for me. And you just got to, I had to hang in there long enough to allow it to be different. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful advice. You know, we, we live in cycles. We don't live in straight lines, right? <laughs> yes. Life, life is a yeah. journey full of cycles. Dean, I just want to acknowledge your courage, your bravery, your heart and your strength um, and everything that you've shared. Uh, you've really moved me and I'm really grateful for your authenticity, um, your vulnerability. So thank you very much for sharing with me and the listeners your story. Thanks for letting me babble on for an hour. <laughs> I appreciate, no, I appreciate I do. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Evelyn. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below. Join us next week for our next hero story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way.